0: Vulnerability is being able to sit face-to-face with someone where the stakes are high. It doesn't matter at the end of the day how many people liked your Instagram post, right? What matters at the end of the day is if there's somebody in your life that is meaningful to you, and you take off the mask in front of them, and you say, this is who I am, and I want you to know this about me, and I want you to really know who I am, and I want to really know who you are, that is scary. That is vulnerability.
1: What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, Gravel Bike, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Lori Gottlieb, who wrote two of my favorite books, one on therapy called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and another one on dating called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. Both these books are page turners that'll help you learn about yourself and improve your own life. What's amazing about her recent book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is that it's a story of her being in therapy, her patients in therapy, and how she actually became a therapist. It's a fascinating read that I think you're going to enjoy. In this conversation, you'll learn three gigantic things. Number one, when does someone become an adult or a man? I was curious. Two, learning how she navigated her very, very interesting career. And three, behind the scenes of therapy. Really, really interesting topic. You're gonna to learn those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we jump into the conversation, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I share these podcast videos, plus a bunch more juicy nuggets for your business journey at youtube.com okdork. Also, a special pre show shout out to listener XX Game Hacker XX. That just sounds neat. They left a review saying, Noah, I thought your guest interview on Not Overthinking was enlightening and truly sparked a flame from within. Thank you so much for that review. I appreciate every single one of you, gorgeous listeners. And if you want a shout out in a future episode, leave a review anywhere online. I check every single one of them. Well, I wanted to start off with um, I cried in your book.
0: That's why the tissue box is on the cover.
1: Yeah, I have my tissue boxes over in the corner there. Something at the end with Rita, the older lady just struck me hard and just her life. And then the the lady, I don't remember her name, the lady with a cancer, and her husband and how she did the, the party at the end. So uh, yeah, amazing book. I really appreciate you sharing it.
0: Thank you. I mean, I think what I was trying to do in the book was sort of capture the human condition. And so yes, there are emotional moments and moments that are sad, but I also wanted to capture the humor of being human, the ridiculousness of the human condition, how, you know, we all act in certain ways and get stuck in certain ways that we take ourselves very seriously. But if we didn't do that, I think it's so therapeutic to be able to laugh at ourselves too.
1: I've been feeling a lot or questioning a lot around like loving myself and what that means. I, I go to therapy and I was telling my therapist, I'm like, you gotta read this book. <laughs> Because I did some of the things in the book to him, like I left him. I did avoidant attachment theory, and I avoided him. And he's and he's like, your book is like, yeah, we know what you're doing. I think what's funny with some of that is like, I was observing and talking about children, and this doesn't cross their minds. They're just living. I wonder what happens as an adult that that starts happening, where it's like, do you like yourself today? No, it's like uh, today I might get a six.
0: I would see two things about that. I think the first is that as adults, we don't realize that we have this voice in our heads that is so unkind and self-critical that most of us have. And so I think that what happens is, you know, when I, when I do public speaking and I'll, I'll go to, you know, on a stage in front of a big audience and I'll ask these people, you know, show of hands, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? and I'll say is it your partner lots of hands is it your sibling is it your best friend is it your one of your parents is it your adult child right who is that person what they don't realize is that the person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves right but what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or helpful and so i think what happens is people don't realize how self critical they are i had a i had a therapy client who did not realize how she spoke to herself. And I could tell from all of the stories that she would tell me that there was something going on about the way she was moving through the world and the the narration in her head. And so I said, I want you to write down everything you say to yourself over the next few days and bring it back and we'll talk about it next week. And she did that and she came back and she was laughing. She said, I can't even read this to you. I'm such a bully. I had no idea. She said, I'm the worst bully to myself. And it would be things like, oh, you made that mistake. You're so stupid right? Or, God, you look terrible today. Just this litany of criticism that we would never say to someone that we truly loved and cared about, not because we're protecting their feelings, but because if a friend made that same mistake, we wouldn't say, God, that person's so stupid. We would just think, oh yeah, they made that mistake. Or if we saw our friend looking the way we looked that day, even when we were just talking about before we got on today when I said, Oh, this is Skype. And you know, like I said, I'm not even I'm in like a ratty old t shirt. You know, I'm so self critical about that. But you looked at me and you said like, you look fine. Like what, what? You know, everything's fine. So I think that the ways that we talk to ourselves really needs to change because not only is it untrue and unkind, but it's unhelpful. It doesn't help us move anywhere. It doesn't help us. I think sometimes we feel like if I self flagellate, I will improve. But it's the opposite. It's like if you have self-compassion for yourself, it opens up the space for you to see yourself differently so that you have, you know, you, you have this sort of contained place to be and you can sit back and say, OK, here's something that I want to change about myself. The self-flagellation will help you in the moment, like it'll kind of like whip you into shape in the moment, but it won't lead to long-term change.
1: How would you recommend as like a challenge or how do you think we can approach all of that, including I mean, myself, yourself and you know, all the audience, the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to first of all do what my what my client did, which was just listen to the voice, just notice it first, because I think the first thing is we don't even know it's there. And so it's kind of like this, this thing that's running the program behind the scenes, like on your computer, it's sort of like, you know, what's the thing that's that we don't see on our screen, but that's running the whole system, those things that we say to ourselves, that's what's running the whole system. So I think that's the first part is noticing. And I think then being able to be really honest with ourselves in a kind, compassionate way. So, in, in maybe you should talk to someone, I write about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Idiot compassion is what we do with our friends. Like they say, you know, my partner did this, my boss did this, you know, my friend did this, whatever. And we say, yeah, you're right, they were wrong. You know, you're absolutely right, they're terrible. <laughs> that never should have happened to you. And even though we know that a lot of times what somebody is telling us They've told us some version of that story before in another situation. And so it's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. But we don't say that to our friends. We don't say, you know, you've gotten into this situation in different ways a bunch of times. In therapy, we offer wise compassion, which is we hold up a mirror to you to help you to see yourself in a way that maybe you haven't been willing or able to do. Once you can see yourself more clearly you can see what your role is and what's not working and what's keeping you stuck. So when we talk about that that kinder voice, it doesn't mean you're not gonna be held accountable. It means it's just going to make it easier for you to see something that you haven't been willing
1: to see. Do you think it's possible to do that alone?
0: I think it's harder because it's almost like if you're looking at a map and you're way zoomed in, you don't see the bigger picture. And once you start to zoom out, you can see all the streets around it, you can see what's informing it. I think we're so close to ourselves that it's hard for us to have the vantage point of somebody who's living outside of our lives. I think that what therapy does is it provides a really good second opinion on your life from somebody who's not in your life.
1: And you're still seeing clients, I'm assuming? Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the main themes you're noticing holding people back in their life? And sometimes lately, I'm like, well, if I just have all these problems or people have all these problems and just accept it, just live. And uh, sometimes I've, I've had a debate with a friend where therapy keeps you in loops. And so I guess I was curious what themes you've noticed from all the different clients and experiences you have that the different kind of patterns people are having that hold them back in life.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about therapy, like you were saying about your friend, where I think that that people imagine that you go to therapy, you talk about your childhood ad nauseum, and you never leave. (laughs) And that's sort of like the media's (laughs) version of therapy, right? Or the Woody Allen version of therapy, or whatever you want to call it. And that's just not what therapy is. Therapy is really focused on the present. And so, yes, we will look at how maybe something from your past is influencing what's going on in the present. But then we want to talk about, you know, how do we help you move forward from that? And then how do we help you create a different future? And it's also, I think, very goal-oriented. So therapy is deep work and you have to do a lot of work. You don't just come in and download the problem of the week, leave, don't think about your therapy, come back, download the next problem of the week. And you know you can do that with your friends. So what you're paying for, what you're investing your time in is the work that you're going to do in between. We like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world and it doesn't matter if you're not making changes out in the world. So somebody might come in and they'll say, well, now I understand why, you know, I, I got into that argument with my partner over the weekend and I'll say, great, did you do something different? And they will say, well, no, but I understand why. Well, that's a good first step. You want to understand what's going on, but then it's, what is your role and how are you going to, to make an adjustment? Because a lot of times when people come to therapy, they say they want something to change, but usually what they want to change is someone else or something else. Change this person who's problematic in my life. Change this problematic circumstance. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not disputing the fact that there are really difficult circumstances and people out there, but then what is your role? What is your response to that person? Is this someone you need to have in your life? And if so, what is your role in increasing the tension between the two of you? How are you exacerbating the situation? Is there something you can do differently? Even if you can't control what the other person does, you can influence what the other person does by changing the dance steps. You guys are kind of in a dance together. And if you change your dance steps, that person either has to change their dance steps or they're going to fall right on the dance floor, right?
1: What are some of the stories that, you, that are pretty common that you hear in, in a session? I think sometimes as humans, we think we're very unique. Oh my God, I'm the only one that has a weird family. Oh my God, I'm the only one that doesn't want to be alone. I know, mean, I'm talking about myself. And uh, <laughs> I guess I'm curious from, from your experiences.
0: I think that's such a good point because I think that so many people feel alone in their experiences. And I think that that has yeah. to do with the fact that, you know, the book's title, maybe you should talk to someone doesn't necessarily mean you should talk to a therapist. Although I, you know, that, that might be helpful, but I think it means we need to talk more to one another and in a real way. Because I feel like what we do is we have a mask on most of the time. And I don't mean you should just kind of dump your stuff on somebody else or, or do TMI, which is what I think a lot of social media is. People will say on social media, they'll post something on Instagram like, I've never, you know, revealed this before and I'm going to, I'm going to be really vulnerable and, and tell all of you guys this thing about me. And, you know, and then everybody loves that, you know, tons of likes, tons of, you're so brave. You're so courageous. That was amazing. That's not true vulnerability as far as I am concerned. Vulnerability is being able to sit face to face with someone where the stakes are high. It doesn't matter at the end of the day how many people liked your Instagram post, right? What matters at the end of the day is if there's somebody in your life that is meaningful to you and you take off the mask in front of them and you say, this is who I am and I want you to know this about me and I want you to really know who I am and I want to really know who you are. That is scary. That is vulnerability, okay? So when we talk about, you know, what does it mean? Why do we all feel so alone? Somebody, it's great, you know, that people are being more open on social media. But I think, can we get to the point where we can be more open with one another in the right context? Again, not like at a big party when everybody's drinking. Hey, guys, guess here's this thing about me. But really, can you see me? Can you hear me? Can you understand me, right, to another person and do that with them? That is really, I think, at the core of connection. And when we talk about loneliness, we talk about this sort of epidemic of loneliness in our culture. I think a lot of it has to do with we aren't really connecting in that more meaningful way. When you ask what do people come in with, they come in with everything from, you know, these are my insecurities, right? These are the things that I did that I'm not proud of. I keep getting in these like relational difficulties and I can't understand why. I keep picking the wrong people. I don't understand why. My partner and I keep arguing. I don't understand why. This is how I really feel about my children. This is how I really feel about my parents. This is how I really feel about myself, even though on the outside I look very different. Here are the things that I regret and I don't know how to get over it. Here's my grief, here's my loss, and I'm drowning in it, but nobody knows. And I see a difference between the way men and women handle this, by the way.
1: Ooh, I'd love to hear.
0: So men will come in and they inevitably, as people do in therapy, will say something like, I've never told anyone this before. And then I sit back and I wait to hear what they're going to say. And usually what they say feels very mild to me. Like I really feel so much compassion for them To me, it feels like even if they have a partner that they feel close to, even if they have family that they feel close to or some good friends, in our culture, it's not okay for men to talk about these kinds of things, right? And so they get that message in subtly, tacitly, overtly, all kinds of ways. And they get it from a very young age. I have a son, so I'm raising a boy. And... I see the differences between the way boys and girls are treated. So boys, like, you know, they're upset about something. Hey, you know, brush it off. It's okay. Like, hey, you know, let's go throw the ball around. With girls, it's like, tell me, tell me more about that. (laughs) We don't do that. Or boys are crying. Like, wipe your tears, right? Mm -hmm. At a certain age, it's like boys can't cry. And girls can't. They can cry as adults. Guys can't. I mean, you know, and and what I mean by guys can't is in couples, let's say that I'm seeing a, a couple and, the woman says to her husband, you know, I really want to get to know you. I feel like we're not close. I want to be closer to you. I want to get to know your inner world. And he starts opening up to her and he starts crying. She looks at me like a deer in headlights. Like, what do I do with it? Like really crying. Like, He's like sobbing, right? So on the one hand, she says, it makes me feel safer to get to know you and to understand who you are. On the other hand, it makes me feel unsafe to see you fall apart, right?
1: What do we do? Yeah.
0: So going back to what I was saying about so men will come in and they say, you know, I've never told anyone this before. And what they tell me feels very mild. Women come in and they say, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother, my sister and my best friend. (laughs) So they're told like one to three people. So they feel like they haven't told anyone. Men really have zero people that they've told. And then what women will say will generally be something that I can see why, you know, I can understand why that maybe was harder to share. And so the messages that we are sending is that, you know, on the one hand, we want men to really express themselves. We want men to have the freedom that women have to do that. And yet we don't actually give them the freedom. And that's changing, I think, in a good way. But we're not there yet.
1: You know, I think part of the appeal of your book, maybe you should talk to someone was the it was like the Mel Gibson movie, What Women Want, where you can hear inside their heads.
0: Yes. Yeah. So
1: it was fascinating to hear what was in your head. Like, have there been any stories where that's happened for you? like, I don't know how not to react or as people are telling you these things.
0: Well, you know, I mean, so when I was putting together the book, you know, I follow these, these four different patients in the book and then I'm the fifth patient as I go through my own therapy. And I was deciding there were so many good stories in terms of when I say good stories, I don't mean juicy stories. I mean, stories that I think people will see themselves in because they're so universal, no matter what people come in with. So if you look at the, the five of us, the four patients and me, Our stories might not be the reader's stories, but by the end of the book, everybody sees themselves in every single one of these stories. And that's because of the universality of the human condition and the things that we don't talk about that we need to talk about. So when I think of John, who's the first person that you meet in the book, your first impression of him is probably that he's kind of an asshole, right? He's very abrasive. He's very insulting to me. He has a lot of what we might call narcissistic traits. He's having trouble with his wife. He's having trouble with uh, the people at work. He's extremely successful. And he doesn't let anybody touch him. I mean, emotionally. And so that's how he, you know, puts people off. And so people would say like, you know, why would you take him into, he was so insulting to me in that first session where he's like, I'm just going to pay you in cash because I don't want my wife to know I'm coming to therapy. And then he says, you'll be just like It'll be just like my mistress, right? I'll just come in here and like, you know, release all my pent up frustration and leave. And isn't that funny? And then, and they actually, you're not like my mistress. You'd be more like my hooker. You're not the kind of person that chooses a mistress. I mean, unbelievably insulting. And yet I think that what people do is they, they speak what they can't speak. They speak the unspoken through their behaviors. So he had you know, I don't want to give away sort of what happens to him because it's it was it's a surprise. It was a surprise to me at the time and it's a surprise, I think, to the reader in the book. But he has so much pain that he is not talking about. And so when we talk about the roles of men and women in his marriage, he felt like he had to be the rock. He felt like if he broke down, if he showed his vulnerability, if he showed his loss, his grief, his pain, then the whole house of cards would come down, right? The whole family would would just destabilize. And a lot of men feel that. They feel like they have to be the strong one. And what happens is it's more destabilizing when they don't, you know, because what happens is then his wife felt like you're a million miles away and I don't even know where you are at this point because he was so intent on kind of being the strong person who's not feeling anything.
1: What can men, as well as women, you know, in terms of loving themselves and if we're not able to go to therapy or obviously there are therapists, but what are some things that maybe we can do to start helping ourselves today?
0: Well, I mean, I think the the book is a start, right? I mean, I put it out there in the hopes of people, first of all, seeing how much we grow in connection with others, because I think we value our independence so much. And I don't think that we realize how important these connections are to our personal growth and also to our emotional health and to the emotional health of the people around us. So I think that part of it is saying, I really want to get curious about emotional health the other part of it is I want to see myself more clearly. We all have blind spots. People from the outside can often see them. So when, when you get into an argument with someone that knows you really well, sometimes they will say something that feels very hurtful because they weren't being very kind in that moment. But there's usually a kernel of truth in it. Like you may be like, I'm yes. not like that. Yes. You're like this, right? Um, you know, we get very young in those moments when things escalate. I think it's so much easier to see yourself in other through the lens of other people's stories than it is for someone to say, you do this, you're like this. But if you read about this in a book and you see other people's stories, you say, oh, I kind of do that. It's like, it's not so direct where someone's saying you are doing this, but you notice it for yourself because I think that the truths that help us the most are the ones that we come to little by little on our own. You know, when someone tells you to do something or tells you to change, it's not as effective yes. as when you say, oh, wow, that's me. And oh, my God, I didn't realize I do that, but I do. Totally. And I really want to be conscious about changing that,
1: be intentional about changing that. You know, two things there. One, one, is an observation? I've noticed recently, I've become single recently, and I did love your book. I read it years ago. I didn't even realize you, I was you as well, the marry him, the case for selling for Mr. Good. I, I didn't realize I was you till recently one of the things I realized lately is going to my people I respect. So they're not giving me idiot compassion, they give me wise compassion. And I said, hey, in moving forward in relationships, what feedback do you have for me from people I, I trust that from your observations that you think will help me lead to a better relationship? And I think one of the key parts is that I'm asking, it's the person I trust and right. be wise, and I'm asking for that, that help.
0: And so what I would say about that is, that's such an important point because so many times when people bring something to us we don't know what they want. So if you can say at the top of a conversation, what are you wanting from me in this conversation? Like when you go to your friends with this stuff. Yeah. You know, are you wanting me to troubleshoot with you? Are you wanting me to problem solve with you? Do you want me to make a decision for you? Do you want a hug? Do you just want to vent? Uh, Do you just want to feel understood? What do you want from me? And this is where so many people get frustrated with each other because they're at cross purposes in the conversation. So it's great that you're very clear when you go to these friends, I want your advice, I want your pieces of wisdom. And then people can give you that. But so many times we get frustrated with the person that we're going to because we never told them what we wanted. And they offer us something thinking that that's what we want. And then we feel like, but this is so not helpful.
1: I run a company and then one of my things I do for fun as a teacher, I help people start businesses and overcome fear, which I think a lot of what you help people with is fear of things. And lately what I when they ask questions, I'm like, my phrase is like, how can I really be most helpful for your question? Because I can tell you what I would do, but what do you actually want help on? Because sometimes it's like, I just want you to refer this person for me. I'm like, fine, I'll just do that. Even though I don't agree with what they're doing, that's how the, the kind of help they want. What do you think helps people make that breakthrough? The question I was originally thinking was like, it's gotta be so amazing for you to have John or different people come into your therapy and then they're like, hey, we've been talking about this for years or months or weeks, and I finally did that thing which I haven't normally done, and I broke through. What finally leads them to take that that leap?
0: Yeah, there's this chapter and maybe you should talk to someone called How Humans Change. And it goes through the different steps of how we change. I think a lot of people feel like, okay, I've made a decision to change, so I'm gonna change. But then it doesn't work. I mean, look at New Year's resolutions.
1: Yes, I have my, like right now, my main thing is to be alone and to be more still. That is my my learning that I'm practicing.
0: Right. So people make all these sort of resolutions, but I think they don't really come to them. It's not like they have an aha moment. It's not like the Nike slogan of, you know, just do it and you do it. Usually a lot of preparation has gone into that that you weren't even aware of. And so in the book, we talk about sort of the pre-contemplation stage where, you know, you're sort of thinking about it, but you don't really know if you're thinking about, you know, you're not really conscious. There's planning, you're sort of planning, but you're not really ready to make the change yet. You take action, you make the change. I think the hardest step is the next step, which is maintenance which is once you make the change, how do you maintain the change? That's the hardest. And people really get tripped up in this phase of change because they feel like they made the change, they're maintaining it, and then they slip up. You know, whatever it is, they slip up in whatever way. Uh, maybe you're, you wanted to exercise, or maybe you wanted to you know, not react in the way you react in an argument with somebody, or maybe, you know, whatever it is. Maybe you wanted to quit, you know, some addiction, you know, whatever it is. And so they kind of slip up and then they feel like, well, all is lost.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Instead of saying, you know what, this is part of this phase. It's a natural part of this phase, of the maintenance phase, that I will slip up. And when we go back to that kind of self-compassion and the way we talk to ourselves, this is an example of, you know, can we talk to ourselves in a way where we say, that's okay, this is normal, right? Because again, we compare so much to other, we imagine that nobody else is slipping up when they've made the change. So. Compare yourself to yourself and know that other people are also slipping up and just look at it as part of the process. Part of the process is I'm going to slip up and then I'm gonna you know, try again and go back to where I was instead of beating myself up. Totally. Because beating yourself up does not lead to anything productive.
1: You know, maybe a follow-on. I've been doing some psilocybin therapy just alone and one of the realizations I had recently, as a form of self-punishment, what I do to myself is I don't brush my teeth when I'm disappointed in myself. But it's a, I think what you said earlier and you just said again is that we make a mistake in our maintenance mode or we're making these changes and then we, and I'm so hard on myself. I was just like, no, just be a little kinder guy. Come on, like chill.
0: That's really harsh, you know, when you think about it. It's like, and I wanna go back to sort of, you were talking about earlier what happens with children, right, and how do we grow up to be adults where where we feel these, these ways and have these stories about ourselves and are so unkind to ourselves. I think like what happens as kids is that, We don't have that voice of, you know, I'm terrible and I should punish myself by not brushing my teeth. What happens is we have a feeling and often our parents who are very well-meaning, and I do this too, right? I have this tendency where we are very uncomfortable with our kids' discomfort. So our kids will come to us and say something like, I'm anxious about this. I'm worried about this. I'm scared. And the parent will say, oh, don't be scared. You know, it's really nothing. (laughs) And it's like, you just tried to talk them out of their feeling. Like they actually are scared. So if you just tell them, it's like when you say to somebody like, don't be defensive. Well, they're going to be defensive. (laughs) Um, You know, so if you, if your kid comes to you and they're like, I'm sad about this. And then we say, hey, look, let's go to Disneyland. Or, hey, look, let's go have some ice cream. As opposed to like, let's talk about the thing that makes you sad. We're trying to not make them sad. We're trying to talk them out of their sadness. Or I'm really angry about this. It's like, oh, don't be angry. She didn't mean it. He didn't mean it, whatever. Instead of letting them talk about what they're angry about. So, right, even with COVID right now, you know, a lot of kids are saying, like, I really miss my friends because they're not seeing their friends. They've been home. And a lot of parents will say, oh, but you'll get to see them in a few months. What they really want to hear is, yeah, it sucks. It really sucks not to see your friends right now when they're, you're, the kid is sad about something, tell me more. Just those three words. And that applies to adults too. When someone like is that. talking to you about something that they're struggling with, instead of getting uncomfortable about the fact that they're struggling and feeling like you have to fix it for them, tell me more. Let them hear themselves and be a good sounding board in the sense of give them the space to go deeper in the story for themselves. And so, what you're really doing as a listener is sort of asking the right questions, so they can hear themselves better.
1: I want to kind of circle a little bit back to the man thing. Something that's been on my mind for the past—I'm 38—and for the past few years is becoming a man. And I came up with a word today called mooberty, uh, which is men puberty. And you know, you can make money, or you can have a beard, or you can have you know, external and potential internal things. I think that's something. And you talked a little bit men crying and how that's kind of the woman's like, well, you got to hold it together. I guess what is your suggestions as men want to, myself and a lot of other men out there, like become men and explore that process of crying potentially, of becoming more vulnerable, of also, you know, taking care of things and being responsible and being a man. I remember in college, I was at a party. This guy, like we were drinking and he looks at me and goes, man up to take a drink. And I just felt so offended. But lately, I have been thinking about the phrase man up a lot. And becoming a man and what that means.
0: Yeah, there's a difference. I think you're talking about sort of manhood and the kind of toxic ideas we have about what men should be like, man up, you know, take the drink, you know, do these things that go against your inner place of knowing. So I think becoming a man is about becoming an adult. And in adulthood, we are able to hear and listen to that place of knowing that we all have inside. Being a boy or a child be a girl too. But being a child is, I'm going to crowdsource my life. I don't feel like I have enough information. There are people out there who are smarter than me, who know more about my life than I do, right? What we come to realize is you can't crowdsource things. A lot of people will crowdsource. Like if you look at Google searches, right? They'll even put in there like, <laughs> should I divorce my wife, right? Like that's like a Google search as like the people on, on the internet or on Reddit or whatever, right? Can answer that question for you. They don't know you or your circumstances or what your truth is. And so I think becoming an adult is about really trusting yourself and knowing that sometimes you're going to make decisions that you look back on that maybe you say, you know what, I would have made a different decision there. But you can't know that. You don't have a crystal ball. And so I think you learn from all of your decisions how you react to the fact that you made a decision that maybe you think another term would have been different or better Maybe, but you don't know because you can't live both. And so I think we idealize the choice we didn't make if something doesn't work out. When you talk about like being an adult, being a man and, and not being sort of like the Peter Pan, the boy, right, who like never grows up, is being able to say, I'm going to take responsibility for my life. And a lot of people don't want to do that because it, there's this um, this moment in the book when my therapist says to me. He said, you know, like so many people say they're trapped, they're trapped by their circumstances, they're trapped by whatever they, they feel like, you know, all these reasons that they can't have what they want in life. And he said, you remind me of this cartoon, and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open, no bars. So if you can picture that, this prisoner like shaking the bars, totally trapped, and all he has to do is walk around, right? That's so many of us. So why don't we walk around the bars? Because with freedom comes responsibility. And if we walk around the bars, we can't blame everyone and everything out there for why we're so trapped and unhappy and and things aren't working out for us. Now we have to say, oh, it's all on me. And so sometimes it's safer in some ways to just sit there and shake the bars and blame the world. But it really isn't in the long term. If you walk around the bars, you will take responsibility for your life. You will feel like, you know, I do have to be an adult and make choices for how I live my life. And no one will save me from that. And it's an illusion to think that anyone can save you from that. You can pretend that other people can make the right choices for you, but only you really know. And you're gonna know by making some mistakes, right? That's gonna teach you something about yourself too. I think when we talk about what it means to be a man, I think so many people are afraid of growing up. Partly because they want to redo on their childhood. They think like, well, if I grow up and I'm an adult, then I don't get a redo on my childhood. And that somehow if they stay in that childlike position that they haven't sort of given up the idea and grieved the loss of, I didn't get the childhood that I wanted. And sometimes people don't want to grow up because um, they are afraid of being in control of their own lives, which is funny because so much of, I think, what people really want is to have agency over their lives. And, and they'll do that in therapy, right? They'll come in and they'll say, what should I do? Make the decision for me. You know, it's like, you're paying me all this money, right, to come in every week so that you can learn how to make decisions for yourself. I know what I would do in that situation, but that doesn't mean it's what you should do in that situation. And I can't possibly know what is the best choice for you because only you have access to your internal world. I love it. But I can help guide you to get clearer on what is going on internally for you so that you can make a better choice.
1: Awesome. We're gonna shift gears to a few different things in in the final few minutes. I guess one thing I was curious about, what are you afraid of now or how do you see yourself now?
0: You know, there's this, there's this great sort of passage in the book. And I say great only because I think it encapsulates what all of us fear. And is the kind of both sides of what we fear. It's like we fear too much closeness, but we fear too much distance. We fear having like no control over lives, but we also fear having so much control over our own lives. We are so afraid of so many things. So I think I share what I write about in that paragraph. It's, I, it literally says like, what are we afraid of? I think I share all of those things. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid of how, ultimately, I think what we're all afraid of is how short a time we have on this planet. I think the theme of mortality is, is permeates the book and not in a way that feels like it's a book about death, but I feel like in order to live your life with your, the most intention, you have to have an awareness of the fact that you have a limited time here on this earth. You know, it's kind of like we, we all know that life has a 100% mortality rate what we kind of imagine, like, but that's for other people. And the fact is that none none of us knows really how or when we will die. And so when I write about Julie in the book, and she has this, you know, this cancer diagnosis, she said at one point, why should it take a terminal diagnosis for people to live their lives in the way that they want to? And I think that is so important to think about. So if we have an acknowledgement or an awareness of death, and we kind of keep that on our shoulder, I think that it helps us to say, I really want to be more intentional about how I live my life. And I think that COVID has done that too, where I think that, you know, all of a sudden people are saying like, do I really, you know, who are the people and what are the things that are important to me during this time? And then are there things that I can let go of and there are are there things that I can reprioritize? Like these relationships are important to me or this hobby, this professional project, this whatever it is, this is what's important to me. This is really the thing that I want to do. And as we emerge from this, this is what I want to take with me. So I think it's kind of like a recalibration, but why do we need a global pandemic or a terminal diagnosis to shake us out of our complacency? What I hope that the book does when you say, what are you afraid of is I hope that it helps people to see that a lot of what they're afraid of is that's holding them back is this idea that they won't face the fact that we're all dying. <laughs> and I say that in the TED talk too, right? I mean, that's the, I, I don't know if it's yeah. on my TED talk, but I did. that was a big moment, right? was, sort of this awareness of we're all gonna die. And how does that change the way you live your life every moment? What are you doing with your time? Not just in the big picture, but what is holding you back from doing the things that you want to do? And why are you taking up emotional real estate with things that mean nothing to you or mean little to you or drain you? Like we do have those choices. So I think the big fear that people have is, what if I don't live my life in the way that I want to and then it's too late? So I say to avoid that fear, be really aware of the fact that you know we are
1: mortal. And the final thing around that is it was very fascinating to hear you listen to yourself during the book. You in the book you said, "Hey, I'm writing this one book, but I really want to write this other book." And the book is this book. One of the things that surprised me and fascinated me about you personally was your career journey. And so I think that the two part kind of question and this is where we'll end it with is how do you want your son to explore his career? And I think what you did with your book, and I'm I'm writing a book called The Challenge, which is about how do we use challenges to overcome fear and, and for business. So, how do you want your son to explore his career, and, and how can we listen to ourselves better? Because I think in the book you you were like, hey, let me just really listen to myself.
0: Right, right. So I think that you know I took the most nonlinear path ever to becoming a therapist, and people look at the different parts of my career where first I was working in the entertainment business. I was doing film development, and then I moved over to NBC, and I was doing um, primetime series development, and then I went to medical school after working on ER, and um, when I was in medical school, there was this move to managed care, and I realized I really wanted to kind of have a a deeper connection to story and the human condition, and so I, I became a journalist. I was writing while I was in med school, and I became a journalist. I still am. And then, um, you know, it was after having a, a baby when I was like, I really need some adult, like an adult professional world. In addition to my world as a parent, as a journalist, you, you work a lot by yourself. And so I was thinking about going back to medical school and, and becoming a psychiatrist and the dean at the medical school said, you're welcome to come back, but I don't think you want to do what psychiatrists tend to do nowadays, which is mostly medication management. and You always talked about, you know, I always had this fantasy of sort of guiding people through their lives as a as a physician. And so she suggested that I get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and go that route. And it was the best professional advice that I'd ever gotten. People look at my career and they say you had all these different careers, and I say no, I actually had one career, and they were all about story and the human condition, just through a different lens. First, it was fiction, you know, telling stories through film and television. Then it was looking at people's stories as they went through some kind of, you know, health issue in their lives. And then it was telling people stories as a journalist, where I would help people to tell their stories. And then it was helping people to change their stories as a therapist. So all of this is about people's stories and the lens through which we view them, and how do we kind of grow and change with our awareness around that. And I feel like right now, I have this hybrid career where I'm a writer, I'm a therapist, Um, the book is being made into a television show. So I'm back in sort of Hollywood in that way. I have a new podcast coming out some media. And I feel like all of the things that I do, even my, my dear therapist column in the Atlantic, they're all looking at story in the human condition through different kind of angles. And I think, you know, at the time when I was making all these changes, people would say, well, why would you, you know, why are you going to leave this great job in television and go to medical school? And then why are you going to leave medical school and go be a freelance journalist? (laughs) Um, You know, and then why are you going to go back, you know, in your late 30s, why are you going to go back to graduate school when you have this thriving career as a journalist? And I think that I just didn't listen to what other, again, going back to you go to your place of knowing, no one really knows what's right for you. You have to go with, you know, go into yourself and say what is right for me, knowing I have this one life. So if I had listened to other people, I probably never would have left the entertainment business. Or maybe I would be a doctor right now, but I wouldn't have had all of these other experiences that that really, I think were so fulfilling for me and really helped me to reach out in the way that I wanted to, which was to bring all of this to the larger public. So I think it's, again, about really listening to yourself. I didn't make impulsive decisions. So it wasn't like, oh, this is like, I want to be an astronaut today. So now I'm going to like write to NASA and see if I can apply. (laughs) So it wasn't impulsive. They were well thought out decisions, but they didn't necessarily make sense in the way that our society looks at how you form a career. So our society says like, you go up, you climb this ladder. Here's how you climb the ladder. It tends to be very linear. Maybe you make a few twists and turns along the way, but you don't like make the kinds of twists and turns that I made and you don't do it with such frequency. And everything I did was very well thought out and I didn't know that I would succeed at them. So it wasn't like a slam dunk, but it was something that I knew I wanted to do. And that if it didn't work out, there was a plan B. And the plan B was I can go back to what I was doing in some way, shape or form. Or I can discover, even if it didn't work out, the other part of it is, I might discover something that I really want to do.
1: Yeah. How do you want your son to do that? And I know you have to go. So, I'll, whenever.
0: Yeah. I mean, I want him to really know himself well enough to say, you know, this is what's right for me. And there are so many times in life when people will tell you, solicited or unsolicitedly, what is right for you. And you can take that information in, you can, you know, use it as part of how you think about the issue. But at the end of the day, no one else is living your life but you. And so how do I want my son to go through life? I want him to go through life saying, I'm going to make choices that feel right for me, not because of something out there, but because of something in here. And if he can get really familiar with what's in here, he will make mistakes. He will say, I regret doing that, or I wish I had done something different. But it won't be as devastating as it is when you make a decision because somebody else told you something and you went with what they said, and it didn't feel right to you, and then I think that's a very different kind of mistake that people make.
1: Do you still take clients?
0: I don't have new, I have all of my clients that I already had, but I I don't have any openings for new ones.
1: Yeah, because I'd imagine now there's like a backlog of people all over the world being like, hey, I really want you as the therapist.
0: It's funny because um, a lot of people said that if I was going to reveal myself in the book in that way, that no one would ever come to me for therapy. And I was okay with that because I already had a full practice. But it's interesting because it had the opposite effect, that now everybody wants to come to me for therapy. And so I think that that just shows that we really want the people that we talk with to be human. We really want people to know what it's like to be a person in the world and use their humanity to help us with our own struggles.
1: Is it more that people need to put themselves out there? That was one thing I was wondering about being vulnerable and you literally put yourself out fully. And I, I like what you said about social media. It's like, it's easy to put yourself, oh, here's a tweet and I've never done this before, but you did it in like a very deep way. I guess I was curious how, you know, how that experience is for all of us or how do we do that in authentic ways? But you said it with like doing it with one-on-one conversations is one way.
0: Yeah, well, first do it with yourself. Make sure you're honest with yourself. Because, you know, like in my TED talk, right, I talk about how we're all unreliable narrators and we all tell ourselves stories that maybe are told in a way that makes us come out to look a certain way, but maybe isn't the most helpful. So I think it's really getting clear about what our own story is with ourselves. And then I think it's um, about, you know, how do we take off the mask? And again, it's not TMI. It's about how do I connect with other people in an an authentic way, which is different from I'm just going to tell them every piece of information about me.
1: That's beautiful. I like that difference. And I, do you think that when people start sharing more of themselves, they start liking themselves more or finding out more about themselves and the connection, the depth of connections that they have from that?
0: I think what they find is that they, their relationships are more meaningful and deeper and more fulfilling.
1: With themselves and with others.
0: With themselves and also with others, because I think if you can't do that with yourself, it's going to be really hard to do it with others. If You have so much, so much of what keeps us from taking off the mask is shame. And we have so much shame. And so if we can work on that shame piece ourselves, then it's going to be much easier when we are wanting to be in relationship with others in a way that feels really good. You know, we're not always worried about hiding these aspects of ourselves, that we can just be who we are in a relationship, which is the most freeing thing possible. And so if you're in a relationship where you feel like you have to hide aspects of yourself or you, or you, or you can't really be who you are, you're afraid of what the other person will think, Um, So many times when I see couples, I tell them what they really need to do is to be able to tolerate each other's disappointment. So someone will say something and it doesn't please the other person. It's not even about the other person. It's about, say, like a guy is saying to his wife or, or someone saying to her partner, right? You know, like something that the other person doesn't want to hear or doesn't or is an inconvenient truth, whatever it is. That's the truth. And so Here's an example of a real life example. Um, a uh, you know somebody said that you know his wife really wants him to like wanted him to like clean out the basement and do all these things. And there were like all these different things that she wanted him to do, and he was he would just do them, but like so resentfully. And he could never say to her like, "I don't want to do that. This is not important to me. And if it's important to you, let's figure out a way to get that done. But I don't want that to be. That is not how I want to spend my time in the way that you want it done." And he was so afraid of disappointing her, right? And it sounds like I'm giving the most minor examples of this. It came out in other ways, in a much deeper way in the relationship, you know, but I'm giving you sort of the top level. And he couldn't tolerate how disappointed she would be. You know, she would get mad. She would be frustrated with him. She would think he wasn't a good husband, whatever it was, right? Instead of being like, just the truth of who I am, this is not a priority to me. I see it's a priority to you. Let's talk about this. Couldn't tolerate that. And so it wasn't just this one example. It was like lots of things. But when he was able to tolerate her disappointment and when she was able to tolerate his, where there were certain things that she felt like she couldn't tell him, right? Or, you know, be honest about. When we can tolerate the other person's disappointment and say, this is my experience and this is who I really am. And now let's talk about this in the context of who we are as a couple. That's a very different kind of relationship. So I'm going to leave it with that just because I do have to get on another call.
1: You're awesome. And have an amazing day.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Same here. Thanks, Take Lori. Care. Okay. That's a wrap. I hoped you loved the episode as much as I did. Check out Lori's book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and thank her on Twitter. That's at Lori Gottlieb 1, L-O-R-I-G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B 1. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go for a walk and talk about deep things together. And before you go, tweet me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. I love hearing from you. Also, remember to go subscribe to my email list. You're probably on it, so just ignore this part. But if you're not, I put my best tips into a single short email sent every single week. You can join at sendfox.com slash Noah. That's sendfox.com slash Noah. And as well, if you don't have your own newsletter, go to sendfox.com and create one yourself. It's free. Finally, a couple of shout outs to my amazing, amazing team. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for making these podcasts sound so much better than the original versions. (laughs) Thank you to David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Jen from the Door Team for all the magic y'all perform on a weekly basis. And finally, shout out to Chad Boyda, my amazing co-founder of Sumo Group. We've been on a long, long journey together. I don't know what I would do without you, brother, and I look forward to many, many more years. ice cream day. What's your favorite ice cream flavor?